From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. This is Cade Massey with the whole crew. Shane Jensen's here. Audie Weiner's here. Eric Bradlow is here. Some combination of us are here every week. Have been for eight years now. For the last two, we've been coming to you mostly via Zoom. Every now and then we reconvene in the studio in Huntsman Hall. We are on Zoom today. We're recording on Monday afternoon today. We're usually Tuesday afternoon. Schedules didn't cooperate. We are on Monday afternoon. Show will go up on Wednesday. Guys, as usual, we'll do a little COVID-19 before we roll into the sports world. Q1, pandemic time. Are we, do we still need to have this conversation? Or is, it, is it over? Is it gone? Can we go back to just sports? What do you think, gentlemen? What's going on? What's caught your eye in the world of COVID-19? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's my, my immediate response, Kate. Um, only because uh, there's so much COVID still around. And while United States seems to be at a really a, an epic ebb or historically in the last two years ebb, um, some of the lowest hospitalization rates we've seen, some of the lowest counts, we still have uh, people dying, but as we talked about in previous shows, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it's popping, it's growing in other countries, particular countries that often grow ahead of us, which at least means we're going to be keeping an eye on this and what that means um, in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, we're seeing it come around in, in Europe. And uh, I just saw in, in the Israeli papers today, R of 1.2. Okay, yeah. hold on, hold on. We haven't talked about R in a while. So, so um, what is this? What, I, I know what it is, but what is the 1.2? Where are you seeing this? Uh, so they just reported. So when R is greater than one, you're you, you're you're transmitting it on average to slightly more than one person, one more person. Uh, so being greater than one means it's growing. It doesn't mean it's growing fast, but it's growing. Less than one means it's declining. In what community or what population was this? Uh, this was the Israeli data, and they have pretty good data. Have uh, always historically have. So um, we're seeing rises in cases. Um, I also saw today in New York. There's also growing up and slight, very slightly, but also going up. Yeah, so I just want to build on your uh, data there, Adi, which I saw the same thing. So now the question is, what's the cause of it? And people say, well, what do you mean? Well, there could be many causes. So let's give a few. One is it's hitting pockets of people that were unvaccinated and who never had it before. I think that's unlikely. Another possibility is that um, that people who had it before are now, you know, either their natural immunity because they had it has waned or because of their shot immunity has waned. That's another possibility. Another possibility, of course, is these are people that had it before and now they've gotten it again. And so what's interesting about that number 1.2 is who is getting it and you know, what's the reason they're getting it is probably obviously increased exposure. But I'd be very interested in breaking down that 1.2 to vaccination status. Did you have COVID before? How long ago was your vaccination, et cetera? Because that's what's going to tell if to me that one level deeper might tell. So what do we do about it? Well, I'm surprised. Maybe you weren't trying to be comprehensive or maybe I misunderstand what you were doing, but I'm sur- I thought you were going to keep on going down other possible explanations. And the, the one big one that I thought was next would be behavioral changes. So wouldn't want the R. No, I was reflecting just who the population was that was getting it. Okay. Not just the, the population. Yeah. Yeah. Just but, which but, segments of people are now getting it that would make the 1.2. Okay. But let's take your lead and just expand a little bit and say, 
RT is also a function of people's preventative behaviors. I mean, if everyone stays at home, you got R equals zero. But if people, it's one reason we might see things higher, even for the same level of vulnerability, would be people just not doing the preventative measures. Absolutely. And I think, I think Adi's also point as to no way should we stop talking about this yet is we're all hoping it certainly happened between, let's say, Alpha, Delta, now Omicron, now there's BA2. Our hope is that the severity of the more, you know, of the later variants continues to potentially go downwards. But were that not to be the case, then all bets are off. And then R greater than 1.2 will not only lead to more cases, which we're also seeing here in, in, in other countries, but we'll also start to see the number of deaths spike back up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean, I, I, my first thought when I ask you, you know, when you pose the original question of like, when we stop talking about it, I mean, it's kind of like the analog of the question I often ask, I have some more risk adverse people that I know that are still like not dining, even, you know, dining indoors and all this type of stuff. And I, I you know, the question is always like, what actually do you have to see before you go before you go back to normal? And so, like, you know, I think it's worth at least thinking about. We don't have to come up with a number right here. But what what do you guys actually have to see before we stop talking about COVID? Like, you know, like, is there a, a number? Is, is it the number of deaths below a certain level? Is it the number of cases below a certain level? Is, you know, what, you know, what, what's your own criteria? And I think, you know, part of the complication as a society is everybody's got a very different criteria for how they define normalcy. Let, let me uh, respond sort of to Kate a little bit. Uh, when I talk about talking about COVID, it's because everyone's asking me about COVID. It's not because I'm personally um, concerned or like if I were the only person in the universe, I'm happy to talk about sports. I'm actually thinking that we're here as functioning as explainers. And therefore, it's really important for us to continue to talk about it because it's still on many people's minds. My general view is that, yeah, we're going to continue to have waves of COVID um, and it's just going to keep coming and flow, ebbing and flowing Um until it basically looks like an, a reg, another endemic virus. So I, I'm actually would like us to talk about it less because I just don't think it's that it, it's, it's something worth talking about. And there are wonderful questions and important statistical things to think about. But I, I think we should start. Um, I, I, I'd be very concerned if we started to go back down to lockdown measures or what they call NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions. I, I know that, that Katie, there's definitely there's a possibility that some of these upticks are because of people relaxing, but I also think that's also, there are communities of people who are finally getting out there that don't have, they don't have a, a they don't have a substrate or that's the right word of natural infection, which I think is really important. I uh, mean, they haven't had an actual case of it when you're vaccinated, getting an actual case of it is actually, a, a, I think it, the data seems to show that that's actually particularly good protection and I think it's not going to fully be endemic until the vast majority of the people really have had it, had an actual case of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that what, what complicates is, you know, uh, we don't have a good I, it's it's very hard to estimate, but it would be very valuable to be able to estimate it like the actual kind of what is the current at risk population for COVID right now? You know, like, because again, in my mind, viewing COVID, you know, viewing immunity as a relatively stable thing, 
I'm like, how are we still, how do we still have COVID cases country? I mean, between, you know, however many 60 plus percent of us being vaccinated and between like probably what, like, a, you know, 80% yeah. or however many, at least 50% of the people that aren't vaccinated having gotten COVID, how do we still have an at-risk population? But Shane, but obviously been- the answer is, is that these things are not stable over time. Right. It's not binary. Uh, like right. That. And so it would be kind of nice, you know, as individuals to kind of know what our COVID at-risk status was, but as obviously, you know at, you know adding that up over the population just like you know how much of a like at risk is it still going forward and that would be that would be if we could measure that that would be the right thing to, i think threshold as so, far as whether we're normal or real, not. real quick real quickly is there is there some future world i mean we're getting so sophisticated is there is there some future world where when the pandemic does come along we are able to know with some specificity our level of immunity at any given moment you like is that not that far fetched like 25 years from now you think we'll have a little on our on our phones or watches or whatever we'll have a little number that says based on everything we know we think your immunity right now is 0.67 and then next month it'll be 0.63 and at some point it says go fill up you know we would so- it's not far that far fetched right? no it, i mean we already have those tests that distinguish between like natural immunity and vaccine immunity right i mean like all we really need is some kind of you know like have that as a more sort of like continuous kind of mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. I, hopefully it's not 20 years from now it's like you know so I, let me answer say- let me answer kate's question then go back to something shane said first of all um one of the things my colleague uh michael platt spends a lot of time on at wharton neuroscience is look if you could stick every if you could give everyone blood tests continuously or if you could stick someone in an fmri machine continuously there's lots of things you could measure but of course those aren't reasonable. So now the question is, what are easily observable correlates of that? And so when you talk about, can we all just have like a, some sort of Apple watch or something else on where 20 years from now, it can give us a continuous probability of risk? The answer is probably yes, but there are probably a bunch of observable correlates of these types of things that we don't yet know, or we don't have the devices yet to measure that are likely to make that happen. That's my belief, and it's the same thing. Back Give us an example sh- of what you mean by an observable correlate. Like, for example, I'll make it up. So let's say as an example, let's say you could measure someone's pupil dilation in their eyes, and that would say something about their risk for COVID. Imagine you could have someone's continuous measure of their pulse rate, blood pressure, oxygen, oxygenation level, et cetera, which an external device could measure. And those things which are observable are correlated with the propensity to get the disease. Imagine, you know, imagine we also did data science and imagine we also had, you know, it's not just the data, but it's now we apply these into machine learning models. It's the change in some combination of statistics that leads to some increased propensity. So that's why I think there is hope. It's not going to ever be as good as, as Shane uh, Cave's suggestion or yours, Shane, which is, you know, give me a continuous blood test or all day long, but it might not be bad. So real quickly, Adi has an elaboration. I just want to point out that in studies, we're often constrained on how fancy our models can be because we don't have that much data. I mean, we're a limited population. You don't have any observations. You can't get very complicated in your model. We're dealing with a pandemic where the treatment condition is hundreds of millions of people. And so if we just were able to collect the data, we could run some Correct. pretty Correct. If we had a time series of who actually had COVID at what period of time by regular which is Adi's talked about this for a long time. If we actually had a random sample, a panel, all this stuff. So now we have the observable gold standard Y, then we could start measuring correlates of it and then we can get somewhere. 
So we know Eric wants to come back to Shane, but Adi yeah. wants to jump in on this real quick. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. I mean, basically, just to follow up, what's happening now is people are getting reinfected, and that's that's fairly substantial and pretty. And that's so that you could have all the shots, you can you can and you can still get and you can have it, and you can get it again. We have to ask ourselves: At what point do we have to say this is just not a virus that we're concerned by, or I'm a person who should be concerned by it? And I think that relates uh, to the questions that Eric is raising about the data. One of the things we don't know is who are who is continues to get sick from COVID. Obviously, unvaccinated do. But if you are if you are vaccinated, why are, who are those people who are still getting sick? They do exist, and they're not and they're not nearly as small as we've talked about before as the CDC reports. It, there are plenty of people who are who've got the the full complement of shots who are cons- still getting quite sick, whether it's hospitalized or it's just a terrible flu or even dying. We don't know what those people are, or what their attributes are, and potentially over time we'll be able to tease that out. The basic question do I have is: Do do healthy people who've been vaccinated and even more so who've had COVID, do they have anything at all to worry about? And I wish I could say the answer. I know the answer. I think I know the answer. Mm-hmm. which is that basically they don't. Um, and, but I would like to know that. And I want to follow up with one other thing, which is something that's coming down the pike. There is lots of treatments for COVID, early treatments. They're, and the flip side of that is there's basically nothing for late. When you're in serious uh, straits, hospitalization, how, there's just how, nothing for you. How long is, give us a sense of how long that early stage is from infection to what, or from uh, it, onset of it, symptoms to what? Five days. When you get from tested, infection or, or symptoms, from symptoms, from symptoms, symptoms, symptoms. There are a whole bunch of very promising, some not as promising, but still useful, but others very promising. The the Paxlovid, the Pfizer, uh, and their their monoclonals. It's still one of them seems to work against Omicron. There's a bunch of over the counter things like budenicide, fluoxamine, and these seem to work. What's going to happen is the next time you get a COVID. Uh, a positive COVID, it's going to be like the Theraflu uh, or, or, or the Tamiflu that you take when you when you when you get diagnosed. We're going to get a COVID, and we're going to go and get a pill or a, or an inhaler, and that's and we're just going to move on. So I was just going to say just quickly, just to answer Shane's question for me, what do I need to see to go back to normal? I'll tell you exactly what I need to see. It's what Adi said. Someone show me a curve. We're on the y-axis. I have, and I'm even for me, it's just hospitalization and death because I'm not overly concerned about getting COVID if I'm not going to be severely ill. Just show me a curve of probability of hospitalization and death instantaneously or since I got my last dosage. And that's what I want to see. And then I'll make a decision based on that curve. And as Adi said, that curve is knowable, not because not based on the data we have right now, but that's a knowable curve so curve and you want and that's going to be a different it's going to fun that the, we know that's going to function uh, as, a, as a function of age it's going to vary as yep. a function of age and we can come up with some other obvious correlates like obesity and some sure. co- comorbidities or whatever so there's a isn't handful. that the curve you want Cade? it like, is it is i would right. settle for just that, age, like a relatively healthy mid yes. 50s what's that age look what's that curve look like yep. yeah but you want it. that for yourself as an individual for your return to normalcy the trouble is, you know, our, as a society, our, our like as public policy, our return to normalcy, like, you know, again, when we talk about normalcy being like, oh, there's, you know, there's no longer mass mandates or there's no longer any of this kind of like, you know, behavioral interventions, it's going to have to be some integral of, of those curves over the entire population where, again, we still have, we'll still be having people sure. that 
aren't trying to even trying to optimize their particular curves. Obviously, we've had people throughout that aren't doing that. I don't. I, that's that's be precise. I don't know that they're not trying to optimize. They just have a different sense of what the curve is. They think they are optimizing. So there's, very, there's a very interesting um, articles in the Times that actually talked about the comparisons that we all make to the flu. And one of the things that, that came out, it was fascinating. Um, I think some of you even read it, uh, is that the health specialists, the doctors, the epidemiologists, think that we should be worried about the flu and that the population as a whole takes the flu as like a benchmark. Well, you don't care about it. Their view is no, no, flu is terrible. You should be worried about it. And it's a very interesting uh, point of view because all the more so then you become worried about, about COVID. And I'm actually, I actually, I'm going to quote without attribution, but I have a friend who's at CHOP who essentially made the argument that we've crossed the, the uh, important uh, Rubicon, if you will, where the, my preventative measures need to be taken on an individual basis and no longer at a societal level. Oh, wow. And, and that is and, and one of the reasons why he makes that point was a was an observation. It shocked uh, va- vaccines count as preventative measures. Yeah. Vaccines are a preventative okay. measure. That You're you not take. talking about childhood vaccines. You're talking about no, no, adult. No, adult no, no, I'm talking about what, in, what an adult what's what. In other words, the, what we should be doing as what individual it, sh- it goes back. It should become an individual. Uh, pr- what you should be doing should be based on your own risk. Your own circumstances. But Adi, let me just ask you a question. Just a quick question on this. Exactly. Let's imagine, and this has been my concern from the beginning, the choices that other people make now affect me. Because the more COVID that's there, the more COVID that's there, the more likelihood there's a mutation to a worse. And so in some sense, we're not independent agents. We're independent agents to decide what we want to do. Does So society should say nothing about protecting the people who choose to protect themselves? Based never, on never. the levels that we are now, the answer is yes. And the second point, and this is what this is the point, the information that, that I thought was unbelievable, is the, the consequences of mandates of all kinds and interventions, NPIs, are starting to be observable and counted. And the results aren't pretty. And they're, they're very disturbing. For example, the CHOP figure, which was unbelievable, was that the rate of inpatient admissions at, to hospitals by children is up by a factor of two and a half unbelievable it's epic epidemic of childhood uh basically psychiatric problems this is they've never seen before and hard and it's hard to know the actual attribution but i think this is something that people are noticing that 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 we've that's that a stunning breakdown in society for two years deserve it or no has had consequences and that we have to recognize them and if you're going to bring in um npis these uh, you have to they have to be really worthwhile on the health side and, and considering our basic population uh, immunization and, 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 and infection levels, that it's just not worth doing anymore because of the negative consequences. Well, well okay. I mean, I, I, got, I got, A, uh, separating out the COVID, co- you know, impact on the breakdown of society against a general background of the breakdown. I, you know, there's plenty, plenty of reasons for mental health and COVID certainly is, you know, mental health, an increase in mental health problem. COVID is just one of them. But I, I, you know, I just want to kind of this individual versus societal, like vaccines, one of the number one things we can take as individuals for prevention, that still is a societal, you know, I mean, it's still a societal decision. I, I assume you're speaking when you talk about societal things we should stop doing, you're talking about just like behavioral mask mandates. You, you, you do think we should keep making vaccines. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, as a societal, like, I mean, because those are, you know, those are also societal 
enterprises, yeah, yeah. not individuals. They are and they aren't. So NPIs is really what it's referring to. On the other hand, we had high hopes that the- so, Yeah, hold on. You, you, you've introduced this acronym, this- oh, I love it. Which is, uh, um, yes, non-pharmaceutical intervention. Yeah, non-pharmaceutical. Enumerate uh, the most common ones that we've been dealing with. When you say NPIs, oh. what are you referring to? Uh, so non-pharmaceutical, the number one, of course, are mask mandates. So non-pharmaceutical intervention, masks. The other distances, washing, um, packaging food, things that uh, um, th- these are non-pharmaceutical. You, what about is work for home? Work from home is a non-pharmaceutical. School, school, school shutdowns? Uh, closures, yes. All okay. these things that don't involve taking drugs. So now the issue, of course, the chain vaccine. is, is vaccines. Vaccines are pharmaceutical intervention, obviously. It's, okay. a, uh, it's a drug, right? So you're, it's something you, ing- you ingest. It's a, it's a drug. So the okay. pro- so I was speaking mostly about the non-pharmaceutical interventions. On the other hand, and, and, and this is the thing about vaccination, which is, you know, I'm highly, highly, obviously a, a major proponent of it. And society needs to do what it can to get people to take the vaccine. But it still simultaneously needs to recognize that infection isn't, isn't not only predominantly among the unvaccinated, but it, it's not, not even differentially among the unvaccinated. In other words, you don't, when, a, when, when, a, an, when an institution, I went to the opera for the first time in two years uh, yesterday, very, very enjoyable. Um, they actually, I, I said they carded me. I hadn't been carded in a while for my, for my vaccine proof. And I'm thinking to myself, this is no utility whatsoever. Um, this is a private institution. They're allowed to do it if they wanted but it's not preventing anything. So maybe they're doing it because they're still encouraging people to get. No, they're not because they're under the mistaken impression that somehow by, 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 by restricting the opera to vaccinated people, it makes it safer. It doesn't. And that well, we so, have to be clear about. So how do we, so let's imagine, I, I could see why that might be true, but do, is this something we know is not true? Like if two, 200 people, a thousand people, 5,000 people are, you know, in an auditorium or in a, a, you know, concert venue, listening to the opera or whatever they're doing. And, uh, you know, five, 10, 15, let's say one tenth of 1% of them are, are, are actually have COVID actively. Um, do we know that there's no added protection by only letting in people that are vaccinated? Okay, so, you know, no is a very, uh, are you making the word? No, I'm just saying what you said. I'm just repeating (laughs) back what you said. So what I I mean by that is that it's not an appreciable difference to effectively matter in a way that that you should go to the lengths of manning the halls. And, you know, it's a lot of cost to do this. And and, uh, in other words, and it it prevents people who might want to go to the opera, not for whatever reasons. Um, so my, my general view is, and you just, and the data is pretty clear on it. And, and this also drives us on experience. You know, when I got COVID, it was, I was well past vaccination. Everyone in my family, but one member, and I'm talking about 15 people all got COVID post-vaccination. Um, and that, that seems to be the da- data coming from England, from the Israel that really counts well. And even in the United States, there, where the data is not nearly as, as uh, well bucketed, uh, it seems that the infection rates among the vaccinated, particularly under 60, um, on the over 60 set, it, uh, it, it's hard to disentangle because they, they, they behave very differently. Um, there does seem to be some lingering effects, and it also seems to go away. Whatever effect there is of preventive infection, it goes away after about three months. I, based on the data you've seen so far, just, just kind of to summarize, because there's a lot, do you, you know... Are, are do you still if if the you know are you still going to want to take a vaccine for COVID? 
Oh, like you mean the it, next, you mean, you mean yeah, the next round, you still got to get back. Ah, okay. So that's a good question. It's, um, so is I, mean, there, I, I mean, you know, just to kind of boil this, boil down your expertise into a single question, are you still, do you still believe in vaccination? Are you going to get vaccinated? No, no, you have to be, whoa, whoa, I already am vaccinated. So you mean get, get booster. Do you, do, second, do, do you want, can, do you a, want a us to continue booster. to produce vaccines that you can take? Okay. So I would ask the question, I would like to see a clinical trial before I go and take a booster. I'd love to see a clinical trial. By the way, which they're running right now. They are running exactly so that I, clinical I, I, trial when, now. When those results come out, I, I'll, I'll go by whatever they show, right? So I'm not. So the observational data that's come out of the Lancet, I think, just ran a big article saying that there was no benefit at any level for a second booster. That doesn't mean there isn't because this is observational. We all know observational data is a piece of crap, right? But well, real quickly, like, what do you it. mean? What do you mean by observational data it's versus a controlled uh, experimental data where you get you get you randomize subjects into treatment and control? That's the most reliable kind of data to see. And if you're dealing with infection, by the way, not serious illness, that should be easily powered up. And what I mean by powered up is you don't need enough that many subjects to be able to measure if something has a, a, a difference that matters. And this should be great. So as soon as Pfizer does, or whoever is pr- promoting the um, uh, Moderna or even J&J, whoever's running these trials, if they bother to take 20,000 in each group, 50,000 in each group, give one of them the booster, give the other a placebo, let them go for six months, look at the infection rate. That should be wonderfully telling. And I'll wait for that. Let me just say, by the way, the infect. Let's just be clear again. The infection rate may be different than the hospitalization oh, and yeah. death rate. And That's by the way, the the study that you're talking about that has come out, uh, came out five days ago, was that it does very little. Thirty percent reduction, by the way, which you could decide whether it's a little or not. For the, data. I understand for the second booster, but I want to see the data again for hospitalization and death. Given the precipitous drop, they seem to have data on now four to six months after getting the booster in the level of antibodies and protection that you're getting, which is why, again, I I think I I like Shane's question. I think when the rubber meets the road, I think the data is going to show that most people are going, certainly people that are immunocompromised, people over the age of 65, but even maybe many of us are going to need a second booster shot. I think the data is going to show that. What? Go ahead, Adi. I just want to say, are you guys willing to take it without the data? I mean, that's just to turn it on back on you, Shane. I'd love to see the data. I'll do it. I'll do it. Whatever the, if there's data, I'll just do whatever the data shows. But at this point, we don't have data. Are you, would you be willing? Well, I mean, we do have some data. Uh, We, I mean, we don't have direct data, but we have some data on it, not having any or relatively minimal negative consequences, at least for my age group. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that. so that, that seems to be true. And I guess I would respond by saying it doesn't seem to be bad, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. if I'm going to be rolling dice, a free, a free roll, yeah, I don't yeah, think that's yeah. true for everyone. And some people, I didn't respond to, the, to either of the three doses I had with any illness, but some people did. And some people mm-hmm. got really, I mean, you've had, you've had, you've had four, four doses. <laughs> yeah, I had three doses, right? Plus, uh, plus that. Plus natural. The, plus it, right. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the only one that really set me back at all was, was the natural. Yeah, yeah. I could um, say for me, yes. Right. I will yeah, go I, get a four shot without necessarily seeing the data. Yep. Yeah, and it's, it's precisely because of what we've just unpacked, which is the cost is really low, it seems to us, and by experience, and presumed benefit of some kind. I want to make one distinction here, and that is we're, we're talking about this vaccination thing more than a year after it's been rolled out. We're really, 
it's uh, this can slip into vaccination, not vaccination. And I think that's a very different conversation than what we're actually having, which is like boost for a second time versus not boost for a second time. <laughs> right. And it's dangerous because Adi's getting pretty strident. And I think it's, we're out here, you know, years into the battle, having a pretty nuanced conversation about third shots, four shots. That's quite different from, do we want people to get the first vaccination? Our lives would be much simpler. Hundreds of thousands of lives would have been saved. If back the first vaccination had just been rolled out and accepted in a way that the entire medical community thinks that it should. But I will also say, I will modify my answer to say something Adi talked about earlier. I'm reading more and more about pills that are coming out that aren't on the prevention side, but the treatment side. If Mm -hmm. I found out that those pills were highly effective, maybe equally effective as the vaccine, then all of a sudden my calculus would change. When I get the fourth shot or if I'm symptomatic or I test positive, I could start just popping pills for five days. And by the way, I agree with Adi. That is the direction for the long run that things are going. In the short run, I'd have to make a decision. Do I want to, without data, do I want to prevent it and get a fourth shot? Or do I want actually to take pills? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen. Well, good to have the conversation. Adi, you talk about, uh, you know, one of the reasons we do this is to explain things. I, one of the reasons we do this is to understand them better. I mean, I, I benefit from having kicked this around with you guys. And I think even more so with people coming in with different opinions. You got you got something. Like I just that. wanted to say something general that you know it doesn't come cl- become clear until you speak it, and until you speak it out loud to people who who are who are doing their best to understand it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's ne- necessarily only limited to COVID. It's great to get your ideas out there, the things that are in your head, until they're spoken. It, it prevents it, it creates understanding, and that's that's why we love. learn as instructors. That's why I love teaching yeah. Adi because I learn when I teach. And yeah, and I think it's important to get the thoughts in our head out of our head and into into words, and uh, and just have them and and be free to to say. You know, sometimes I've said things that I that I wish later I did, I just said, oh, that wasn't right. But I think it's important to be able to get out there and say it. Yeah, and and but having a willingness to be wrong, having a willingness to change your mind greatly facilitates that so you're going to think more clearly if you're willing to be wrong because you're willing to say something that turns out to be wrong but you but you end up understanding better as a result all right guys that has been another q1 we still have three q's to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball welcome back to Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM, rolling into Q2 now. Q2, one of our open topic quarters. We've got the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow is here, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. You guys can jump in in a way. We'd love it. If you would, give us a shout on Twitter. At WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. We'd love to hear from you. We follow all of our, our guests, and we're tweeting about the world of sports analytics every now and then. Give us a shout. Let us know what you think. You can also send us an email. We have a mailbag via email the address there is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu we read everything you send us and we love to hear from you critical positive questioning whatever you got we love it we get as much of that on the air as possible guys a lot of things going on in sports right now um notably we just finished rounds one and two of the ncaa tournaments did you take it in did you enjoy it did anything jump out to you so i watched almost I watched as many games as I could. I mean, I think I watched almost all of them. And Okay, hold on. You know, 32 teams have been knocked, not counting the first four. 32 teams have been knocked out. That means there have been 32 games. Honestly, not highlights. 
like real-time action, even if only a few minutes, how many of those 32 games do you think you've seen? No, no, no. There's been more than that, right? The first round oh, is anyway. 32 games. There's 48 games that have been played. Oh, there's 16 left, right? There's 48 games. 48 games. Good. Yeah, yeah. 48 games have been played. So, look, I, two things come to my mind. Number one, our guest last week, uh, Professor Jacobson from the University of Illinois, is, was about right. Um, now that I'm looking at the data now, he said, hey, fill out your bracket, pick two ones, a two, and somebody else. I think that's going to prove pretty accurate. I think we've lost a one. We've lost Gonzaga, not Gonzaga, Baylor. Matter of fact, five straight years, I just I read this, you know, once, once Baylor lost, five straight years, the national champion hasn't made it to the round of 16, which is, is interesting. Um, and of course, we lost a two. Kentucky uh, lost as well. Uh, Kentucky lost to St. Peter's, who then beat my favorite team, uh, which was Murray State. And so they're now playing Purdue. I mean, they're really going through the gauntlet. They're playing Kentucky, Murray State, which won 31 games this year and had won 21 straight. Now they're playing Purdue. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. So the first thing was, Professor Jacobson, it was seemed to be about right. The second thing was just the amount of upsets. And so I did a, a little count earlier today. So this is where the lower-seeded team beat the higher. Not, I'm not weighting it in any way. Nine beating eight counts. There are 16 upsets out of those 48 games that have happened. So one of the things I wondered is how rare is that or how surprising is that? And so actually, shockingly, there is a data set on that. Um, it turns out the average number after two rounds is 9.9, so around 10. 16 appears to be quite high. The maximum ever for the entire tournament. Remember, we still have 15 games to go. Okay, hold on. And I just said, let's set base rates again. You're saying out of 48 games. Correct. The okay. first two rounds, the average number of upsets is 9.9 historically, and we're at 16. I think people would, we would intuit that that is lower. They, they would expect it to be higher than that, like 10 upsets out of 48 games. I mean, you think about March of no. Madness. Look, it's right no, there under no, 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 no. You remember in the first two rounds feature the biggest, uh, um, biggest mismatches. So mm-hmm. the ones play 16s, two play 15. So it's the magnitude of the upsets, not the frequency Correct. of the upsets. So here it's, yeah, but there's been, this is definitely an unusual year. And there's also been some biggies. So what is it? Give me, I'm, I'm at the edge of my seat. What is the average number at the end of a tournament? And what's the so, max? Yeah. The maximum is 19 ever. And oh, we're at we're 16 already. We're at oh, 16 already. And the average number at the end of a tournament is 12.4. So we're already above the average with 15 games to go, right? And so, and the average number, uh, since Adi, you're very good at math, if the average is 9.9 after two rounds and the average is 12.4 at the end, that means 2.5 is the expected yeah. number of remaining upsets, which would get us to 18.5, 19, which would be kind of tying. We have a chance to break the record this year for the largest number of upsets ever in the NCAA tournament. So let me just say, I would say right now it's a very high number, but it's not something that we should say. And I was thinking about this. What could cause this? I can imagine lots of reasons, but I, I, here's three. And I'll just throw them out there. One is the committee sucks and their seatings were wrong. <laughs> well, that's, you gotta, that's one possibility. I got to believe po- the committee is, gets, gets roughly better over. No, no, no. But, right? I mean, all right. That's, approximately. But, but on, that's, that's number two. I think to the extent that they really are, to the extent that the seating is entirely based on ability as opposed to some kind of political slash whatever consideration. Correct. Yeah. So one is right. So uh, when I say the seatings are wrong, uh, Shane, I mean, there could be all kinds of reasons people say seed uh, in certain ways. The second is I'll go the Shane Jensen rule. It's what I wrote down. Um, there's just a lot of inherent variability. 
you know, there's a lot right. of inherent variability. Is there more Man, now Shane. than there ever was? Yes. I mean, and I think most people would say that the transfer portal that there and maybe you could argue the use of analytics has equated things more that we yeah. are seeing an more increase, parity. more parity. The third part is, of course, I, I wrote down the Bradlow rule, which is momentum and non-stationarity. <laughs> and if, but I want to point it out for the following reason. Let's remember, not the 14th through – there's a lot of seeds that the reason they're in the tournament, even 11, 12, 13, 14, they won their conference tournament. I understand they didn't win the Big Ten they didn't win the Big 12, but they won the SWAC. They won the, the MAC. Like St. Pe- they won their comp. They've already won Ivy five League. or six. Yeah the, <laughs> Ivy, yeah, the Ivy League. I mean, Yale did that. They didn't make it past Purdue. But they've won five or six games in a row. And so, to me, I'm just saying it's a third possible explanation. There's non-stationarity. And that the, the committee is looking at the total body of evidence and maybe not putting as much weight on the recent evidence. And so those are the three reasons I came up with. Seedings are wrong. There's more variability than we think and non-stationarity. I think there's one theory floating around that there's this emphasis on quadrant one wins. And Correct. a lot of those happen early in the season. Because well, that's going to go into my non-stationarity. But I agree yeah. with you. No, this they, is they, the, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you one mechanism underneath your non-stationarity. Yep. You're like that you're too much weight. The weight isn't right because the, the quadrant one ends up putting more weight in early in the season, which is the least valuable information out there. Adi. I want to make a mathematical uh, query um, relating to the number of upsets passed in the sweet in the last sixteen games. You said that there, were, and that you I agree with the calculation. You, on average, it's two and a half. Yeah, I think it was either two and a half or two point seven, somewhere in that range. Yes, that seems small because it seem it should be mathematically in the round sixteen. The te- the, the teams should getting to be equal as you get closer to the the. Should be easier. Unless there's been a lot of upsets in the start. Right. Right. There's there's a, there right. is a correlation because, or an anti-correlation. Right, right. But we're talking about there. an average, right? So on average, we're too so so I would have I would have imagined that there would be more upsets in this uh, proportionally in the last 16 than out of the than out of the first 48. And that's really it's 10 out of about 10 out of no, 48. no, it's the same, Adi. Adi, 10 out of 48 is about not, 20%. And then yes. we've got 15 games, 15 games, and, and 20 out of 15 is two and a half. It's a little bit less, but statistically. But I would have be, thought, so my real question is, I would have thought that there would have been more upsets in the first part than, there, than we're actually seeing. But my real question is, are we going to break the record? No, think I, break I, the record? I think we're going to break the record, but Adi, let's also remember, in the first couple rounds, everybody counts, not just me, Nine versus eight, right. ten versus seven. Yeah, right. No, no, but Adi, those have all shaken out now. All and so out. in the final 16, that's why like all, also, all also, 48 games are not don't count equally. And they happen in the first two rounds. They don't happen as much later on. But also think about the normal distribution. And as you move out of the tail into the thicker part of it, that 10-7 is probably about the same distance as a 2-3. You know, because right, right. teams just are more jumbled together. And so it's not just the seed difference, but you might want like the power ranking difference. And how but does I mean, vary is my rank? logic incorrect that if you have a bunch of like dramatic upsets in the first half of the tournament, yes. you shouldn't just take the expected number historically for the second half and add it because, you know, there's, right, there's right. probably a no. negative correlation. Actually, no, 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 Shane's right. got a great point, which is Adi asked a very 
direct question, which is, do we expect it to break the record? Actually, I probably then, given what Shane just said, I should probably answer no. And here's why. Given that we've had a large number of upsets in the first two rounds, that's 16, the expected number historically is 2.5 to 2.7. We should be under that number due to the negative correlation between the first round uh, upsets. So nice. maybe we're not going to get to 19 yeah, okay, in expectation. Okay, but, but, but they're not going to fall all even-like, you know? And by the way, we don't have to answer this theoretically. There's a bracket laid out right in front of it. You can go look. So, for example, we got number three Tech playing number two Duke. Friggin tech, tech is favored. Tech's favored yeah, in that game. Tech's, tech's favored. 538 tell us, tells us they should win. And by the way, Wait. let me just say, by the way, another fun stat about Duke, since I'm a Duke hater, uh, Mike Krzyzewski has never won an NCAA tournament game as an underdog. Right. Interesting. Okay. That's a long history. That's surprising. Well, yeah, so gonna, that tells me that they've been on the seat a lot. Aren't, isn't Duke two and Texas Tech three? Even though yeah, but Texas dogs? Tech is favored. Texas so, Tech so, by so, 538 and the betting it's, line. It's pretty so uncommon. You mean the two versus three or the actual odds? He probably means actual odds. Well, he does. It could do. Duke, Duke is rarely not favored, I guess. In the 538 odds. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Texas Tech is favored, and the and the betting line has Texas Tech favored. Now it's only one and a half points. It's not a massive margin. And Duke, by the way, I should say in the Shostakovich area, era, he's only played five times as the underdog. Let's not make it seem like he's 0 and 50 as the underdog. Yeah. But yeah. I'm just saying they have not won as the underdog. Yeah. So, by the way, we're expecting already one upset. (laughs) Well, I'm going to give you another one. So, Arizona and Houston play in San Antonio. Arizona's a one seed, Houston's a five. 538, which again is based on, they take an ensemble of six different power rankings and they come up with uh, Houston 52%. So, it's a slight favorite. I I think that's an exaggeration. I mean, I think that's overly optimistic for Houston. Let me just say, Houston was one of the most impressive teams I saw in the first weekend, but I will Mm -hmm. say the following. Everyone knew, we talked about this last week on the show, Houston was not a five seed. That's, that, the, the, the committee totally botched that. They were much better than a five seed. Um, but either way, uh, you're right. I think Houston has a very reasonable – look, they almost were playing TCU. If T- TCU blew the end of that Arizona game, uh, Houston should have been playing TCU and not Arizona. Arizona got lucky to win that game. Let me ask you a question. Did any of you guys pick either Baylor or Arizona to be a Final Four? No. No. Why do you ask that? Why because do you ask Gary? Those are Baylor's eliminated, and you're now Arizona. I think our hunches went against the the, the rankings there for whatever reasons. Well, you had to drop some ones. Uh, so. Well, you have you have to. That's a funny business, right? Saying that something on on average one loses doesn't tell you which one did. No, that's right. That's right. That's right. And if I, mean, I, I, go, I you know. The most likely bracket would have final four is, is that really, was it all four ones or not? I didn't pick it because I wanted to have a chance of winning. So I had to go deep. By the way, I had, I had Villanova beating Arizona anyway. Villanova, this is, you know, we did it. I had W Moneyball. I have Villanova as being my national champion, but either way, I had Villanova beating Arizona. Look at you betting, betting for your neighbors. You're just betting for the neighborhood. No, 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 no. Villanova. Kentucky, Kentucky was in Baylor's bracket, right? Yes, Kentucky and Baylor, the one and two and are both, out. They're that, out, right. Okay. That's the bracket that's left with Purdue is the highest seeded left. That's the Purdue St. Peter's. And then, by the way, in Philadelphia, I'm so happy for my son who's going to this. This is a titanic war. UCLA and North Carolina. Yeah. What a, that's, that's a game. 
And I'm going to tell you something. In my view, the winner of that game is favored against Purdue or St. Peter's. No, I don't care. No. Well, come on. It'd be phenomenal if St. Peter's gets through Purdue. I mean, they've got some. No, no. I said, I think the North team. Carolina UCLA winner will yeah, be favored I, against Purdue. I, I bet that's interesting. I don't think so. Yeah, they look really good. So. In their I think per, Purdue's, yeah, Purdue is a. Purdue was number one at some point, I think, this year. Purdue's very highly thought of. They got a couple of guys on there that are going to be as good as any guys they ever step on the court with as college players anyway. Um, by the way, I've got U of H in my final four. So I've got I've, my dark horse final four is still alive. Um, all right, guys. Yeah, all anything? they have to do is get through Arizona and Villanova, and they're going. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no like, well, you know, but Or Michigan. But back to how you pick this final four, it's like you, you definitely slot one, one, probably a second one, but you could put a two if you want, and maybe a three, and then you go and then you reach and you go grab a four or five or a seven or whoever you kind of want to put dark horse in there. So we all kind of did that, and my dark horse is still. Yeah, I had around. Gonzaga and Kansas hey, I, as my I'm two gonna ones. A, I'm going to take just a, just a second to brag that I'm the only one of us with all four of our candidates still alive. Remind us who <laughs> yours are. That's well, great. I didn't pick Kentucky. That was my I was the only one who didn't. Pick yeah. So. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, uh, we have other news in the world of sports. The NFL has been breaking big news kind of since we finished our show last week. All kinds of quarterback signings, some guys changing teams, some guys re-upping with their same teams. What's caught your eye in the world of NFL over the last week? I just, I just never understand. I, I never thought I would see the day. Let's forget Deshaun Watson's legal issues, other stuff like that. I mean, you got a $230 million guaranteed contract. I just didn't think we'd see the day where a team would invest so much money over such a long period of time. Um, there's no real way. Maybe there is at towards the end of the contract to spread out the cap hit from this. But again, it gets back to why the Patriots were so great for so long um, and why other teams. I mean, when your quarterback is great. And by the way, I don't know. I think Deshaun Watson's really good. I don't know that he's great. But regardless, when your quarterback can be paid like Tom Brady, 20, 25 million a year instead of 40 to 45 million a year, it makes a huge difference. So I was shocked to see Deshaun Watson get that much money. And maybe I was also shocked to see Matthew Stafford get $40 million a year at age 35. You know, maybe everyone has has gotten fooled that, you know, you can be Tom Brady too and play great until age 44. Stafford's 35 at this beginning of next season i don't know he's going to be that great between age 35 and 39 i don't know that and his four years for 160 millions guaranteed yeah no and i mean i i mean the cost for deshaun watson wasn't just that gigantic contract but i mean three first round bet draft picks right and like a third i mean it's it's a mammoth and i mean i i i understand the reasoning cleveland is you know kind of i mean i, I do think deshaun watson at least prior to all his entanglements was a top five quarterback in, in, in the NFL. So, I mean, I do really think that they got real good real quick with his addition, but was it worth the kind of cost both, you know, so I Shane, mean, all the various costs. Of no, there's, yeah, you've named two costs. There is a third cost. Yeah, there's, I mean, of course, the third little, cost. I, a little part as a of your soul. Fan, I would not be able to cheer for him. That's the other cost. But. And Shane, the, um, and given the division they're in, so Cleveland is, uh, Cleveland's playing Baltimore to decide the division or in the playoffs next season. Who are you taking Cleveland or Baltimore? Uh, Cleveland with Deshaun Watson. I am, but, okay. uh, but I mean, I, like okay, hold on, hold on. What Deshaun Watson are we talking about? You guys haven't seen him play football. Well, no, no, that's right. Yeah. You yeah, haven't I, seen I, him again, play football under the public right. scrutiny. No, I'm with you. I'm taking the Ravens. I understand. We conditioned on them both being in the playoffs. And so I'm, 
Therefore, I'm assuming that Deshaun Watson is kind of the Deshaun Watson we saw prior. That's a clever to answer. That's a clever answer. I, I don't know. Hey, it was the know. condition I was given. Uh-huh. And the but problem I mean, with it, would, would I the take bench. them against Kansas City? Would I take them against Cincinnati? I mean, we're saying, I mean, why isn't Cincinnati in the playoffs? You know, I mean, okay. The, let me that, ask that a different AFC version. Is let, a crazy let me ask a different version of Eric's question. Say Cincy doesn't win the division, which mm-hmm. of either the Ravens or the Browns do you think is more likely to win the division this coming year? I think it has to be that. I think it has to be the Ravens only because of their previous track record. And you know what? As you said, Kate, first of all. Deshaun Watson may not be playing the first four to six games of the season for other reasons. Or and 17. I mean, who, right. Who, who or, or he hasn't actually played football for a while. I'm not, he may, I, I agree with Shane. I think Deshaun Watson was a top five quarterback. Will he be for the first half a dozen games of 2022? I don't know. Why, when you said given their most recent history, Cleveland's had more success in the last couple few seasons or like at least two seasons like both getting to the playoffs and advancing in the playoffs and Baltimore has, right? Now, hold on. This past season. You're, you're, are, you, entire... are you talking like their 10-year history or are you talking no, their actual this... recent history? This past season, they were all tied. I mean, they all had basically had the same record and they were, they were kind of the same team. And, and the year before? And the Ravens, I, the Ravens. The year before went Cleveland playoffs. went to the, uh, FC, like went to the, at least the division. Okay, round, so right? the Ravens won a playoff game, if I remember correctly, and they got knocked out by the Titans. So we're kind of splitting hairs on that one, Shane, I think. And, or, and, well, so, I mean, my yeah, point is that the Ravens don't five. get an advantage over the Browns based on recent history in terms of, like, you know, these current teams. Well, now, now they don't have a quarterback next year. I don't, I, I would How's that them. Ravens quarterback situation? It's unstable as well. I don't know why you're fighting this one so hard. They've got a they've got a quarterback. He's signed to play next year. I mean, let's see what happens. But I mean, right. lots of quarterbacks have played in their final year of their rookie contract. Either way, that's a really strong division. Why don't we say that? And you know, and, and by the way, the Steelers. I mean, you know, they don't stink. They never. You know, Mike Tomlin's never uh, had a losing season. Maybe uh, they're going to stink true. this year. But I'm all I'm commenting on is that's a there's three legitimate teams you could pick to win as a division and it's even more of a gauntlet as a conference because i mean i i think i'd i'd put at least two teams in the afc west maybe ahead of you know cleveland as well so i mean i i I mean i agree with the general point that i i don't i don't think that the various costs of deshaun watson i don't think are worth it given just the i mean even if he does kind of take them from being you know like like increase their you know the rank of that team, they've still got a gauntlet to get through to get to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I, 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 I don't know about the whole thing. I think for me, I, you know, there's, there's this, who does this? Someone does this kind of contest. Like you, what franchise are you going to buy or sell if you've got a five-year window? Like we should have a market, like we're talking about the next five mm-hmm. years. So you're kind of buying, I think PFF plays a game like this. You're kind of buying the way it's run. You're a little bit of the, roster but also you kind of bind the way it's run whatever price i used to have on the browns i've just i've got a lower price on them now because mm-hmm. of the decision making that went into this um and the complications that come with it so if you're a fan of other teams in that division then you're probably maybe a little bit happier but it's an interesting experiment that's for dang sure any of those other contracts jump out to you about the nfl any other news there interesting to you well i just actually saw that um Matt Ryan's going to the Colts. And I also saw that I think, I think I think I just saw something pop up on my screen. I couldn't I'm trying to talk to you guys and record on the air here. I think Mariota may have gone to the Falcons. 
but I'm not sure. Mariota signed somewhere, and I don't think it was he signed as as the backup to Matt Ryan. But yeah, Mariota. Fascinating how much movement we have in the veteran quarterback market now. We didn't grow up with this kind of. Well, obviously, we grew up. We didn't grow up before free agency, but it's it certainly has gotten more active that these guys change teams. Yeah, no, and I kind of wonder how much of it is the. Uh, like, you know, just kind of the, the the different kind of economic situation now versus back in the day versus this kind of like, I mean, I'll call it the Tom Brady effect, but Matthew Stafford obviously demonstrated as well that, that, you know, we've had a couple very recent cases of a quarterback kind of moving and instantly having success. And that's got to kind of change how veteran mm. quarterbacks think about, you know, <laughs> sort of the end of their contracts and stuff like that, as well as how teams think about, veteran quarterback yeah right? that's right this will fix everything man just get Matt yeah. Ryan in here we're going to be in the title game now, I was going to say just to Kate's point do we have any history historic precedents in the NFL of let's say Deshaun Watson doesn't play four five six whatever number of games in this season do we have any historic precedent precedents of a quarterback not playing for a year and a half not due to injury and how what happens when he comes back I'm just saying we talk about uncertainty maybe we're minimizing the amount of uncertainty you also have to put on Deshaun Watson's performance I love yeah, it. I, I, think, I, I mean, I, I do think we have had quarterbacks not play for an entire season due to injury, and that's even more of a chance than Deshaun, in my opinion. Right. Well, there's a, except that there's this extra public scrutiny thing. But, but I, you're, as always, Eric, the lesson is dial up the uncertainty. It's probably more there than you think. All right, guys, that's been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now. We've got another open topics quarter for us. We've got a special moment here in this quarter. We're going to pull in a guest. This isn't our regular guest. Segment. We're going to do a quick hit, as they say in the industry, with one of our favorite all-timers. I mean, over the eight years, he's got an advantage because he's a friend, but he's been one of the best. Chris, Chris Alexopoulos. Chris, longtime producer of all things soccer at ESPN. Also the X games. He used to go hang on Aspen every year and produce the X games. I mean, what a life this guy leads. And he carries the flag for us men's and women's soccer teams. So the, one of the last times we talked to him was when the U S men's team did not qualify for the last world cup. And, and, and we tried to give him a few weeks to get over it. And then we got him on the line and he wasn't over it. He wasn't over it. It's a little sensitive. So I thought of you, Chris, as I'm Still reading, not over it. I know it's reasonable, totally reasonable. But look, man, we're at risk. This is why we wanted to talk to you. People don't know. Yeah. Here's the deal. Most people don't know. The third I call it. It's not the third leg. It's the third something of qualifying for the World Cup is coming up beginning like this week. The game the first game is Thursday and then Sunday and then Wednesday. So over the next week and two days, the U.S. men's team will qualify or not for the World Cup. And they're in a reasonable position, but they've got a tough slate these next three games, and they've got these injured players. Yeah. And I'm starting to get really nervous. I figured you, you were nervous. Be. Okay. Well, we want the scoop. So tell us, Chris has been, I mean, he's been a World Cup producer for years. He's done all the things. He loves the team. And how worried should we? Let me just walk through the slate real fast. They're playing Mexico. Oh, that's, I think they're playing in Mexico. Aren't it's they? at they're Mexico. Playing, yep. Yeah, at Mexico, Florida. And then they're yes. playing. 
Panama at home, and then they're going yep. to Costa Rica. And pa- Panama is like the number four team right now. And yes. Maybe Mexico's number two right up there with the U.S. And so they've got a tough slate. They haven't, I think, historically got many points in Costa Rica. So, Chris, tell us what's going to happen, man. Don't, don't make us go another World Cup without the American team. I'm, I'm super, super worried about this. If I go in 90 different directions, it's because I am uh, – <laughs> Anxious. I am am very anxious. But Chris, also just for our fans, please tell them. Tell us. I looked earlier today, but tell us how many teams are in their group, how many make it, and stuff like that. Just to level set for those of us that don't follow soccer all the time. That would be you. Uh, I follow (laughs) solo more than most, but not all the time. Me too. Me too. Me too. All right. All right. All right. So this is the final stage of qualifying for the World Cup in Concacaf our region. It used to be that it was an elongated, long process of 10 games over the span of almost a year, uh, even a little bit more. And we're at the final stage, but because of COVID delays and because of this ridiculous world cup in the winter time coming up in Qatar, it's been increased this final group to, uh, to uh, eight teams uh, no longer called the hex, but now whatever we're calling it. So there's now 14 games in a tighter schedule. So instead of, it used to be where you'd have two games in a row in, you know, in March, and then you wouldn't play again until June, and then you play two in July, and then you play two in September, blah, blah, blah. Now it's three at a time, um, which, uh, and we're in the last sort of stanza of these three. The United States has played 11. They're tied for second place with Mexico behind Canada, who's in shockingly good shape. The top three teams out of the eight automatically go to the World Cup. The fourth team has a bit of an out where you go and play a playoff against, uh, against another uh, confederation, and it's, it's relatively easy uh, if you finish in fourth place this time. Fifth place currently is Costa Rica, who is uh, old, experienced, mm. uh, and hot right at the right time. So what happened the last time the U.S. didn't qualify was a 3% chance on the last day of everything going wrong and everything did go wrong. And currently it's setting up the same way. So, yeah, everybody has a right to be nervous. Three games in a row at Mexico, which the U.S. has never won at Mexico. Sunday against Panama at home in Orlando, which should be three points and easing everybody's mind. But... I don't think it's going to be that easy because you don't just wave a magic wand and win games in any sport. Uh, Real quickly, it's three, it's three especially, points. Yeah. Three points three. for a win, one point for a tie. Yeah. And so they're right. looking for points and give us some sense of what people think they probably need. I know this is four. uncertain. You think four. they need four. Okay. Yeah. They need four. And if you think you're going to get, if you think you're going to get three in Mexico and you think you're going to get three in Costa Rica, you're not. So you got to okay. get three from Panama. Who's not guaranteed. And then if you have to go to, if you're in the United States and you got to go to Costa Rica, uh, five years ago, we lost at Trinidad, who was eliminated and last in the group. And, and this time it's at Costa Rica and I've been there. It's insane. And this group is not like experienced and, and, you know, and confident. It's, so Chris, and, is there yeah. any, is there any way the U S I've asked, always asked soccer experts about this and maybe it's also because I'm a parent of three kids that played soccer. <laughs> Can't the U S just find some strategy, which I hate about soccer, but do it anyway to get a zero, zero tie in Mexico. Just, just plug, you know, put everybody in the box, just play as conservative as possible. Just play for zero, zero, get your one point and get out of there. 
I mean, easier said than done. It's happened before. Uh, you know, it happened in 1990, uh, leading up to the 1998 World Cup, where it was 0-0. It happened in uh, the lead up to Brazil as well, uh, where it was, I believe, 0-0. So it, that has happened before, but that's asking for... I don't think this team is made up of the same uh, uh, metal that the team that was going to Brazil was and took uh, and took a point out of uh, Mexico and Mexico city. Um, I just don't think it's, I don't, I just think you expect zero points in Mexico and we're all sort of worrying that the bottom's going to drop out. Yeah. Not to take away from the crisis that America's facing right now, but can you tell me a little bit about <laughs> Canada right, right, and right, how yeah. they, no, hold on, hold on. it's actually how Canada's- it's Canada's fault, yeah. right? I thought that's where we're going. It's just Canada's fault. They're not supposed to be. No. Yeah, so how are they? Canada, yeah. as how, how is Canada? Are, I mean, a delight. I, don't, I think it's the 90s since Canada last made the World Cup or something like that, right? It's I been a long time. 80, I believe it's 86. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think it was 86 yeah, yeah. in Mexico. Uh, and, you know, they, they were happy to be there at that point. They've got a number of great players. Uh, they've done it without Alfonso Davies, who's their best player. And he's been out for a number of these qualification matches. They've done what they needed to do at home. They've stolen points. They are young and spirited. They've got a great coach who seems to be managing this three games in a row thing a lot better than the United States has. And they're comfortably out in front uh, with 25 points. U.S. has 21. Mexico has 21. So Canada is, you know, all but going to qualify in the next few days. And that's fine. I think everybody's really happy for them. People love Canadians, and it's true in soccer as well. And, and hey, if we don't, if the U.S. doesn't get through, then we have a we have a second team we can pull for, second North American team we can pull for. Well, yeah, but I mean, okay. it's like to not make the World Cup twice in a row. It, it's already been sort somewhat catastrophic in small ways that we all sort of can't pick up on uh, for soccer in this country. At least the domestic growth of the game, not for EPL, certain Champions League, men's and women's World Cups. Those are off and running. Those are flying properties, uh, you know, especially, you know, the, the Premier League on Saturday and Sunday morning. Yeah, you know, just about everybody's watching that now. That's off and running. I'm talking about Major League Soccer and the U.S. men's team. It is a it is it, it was a just a crushing blow to not qualify the last time. And it's going to be it'll it'll be lessened a little bit. Sorry to go on here, but it'll be lessened a little bit by the fact that we don't have to qualify in 2026 because the World Cup will be here. <laughs> um, so that's rocket fuel for the sport here. So I, I don't think this would be the worst thing ever because this World Cup's going to be in Qatar and nobody's going to watch it at two o'clock in the morning unless you're, you know, a diehard or, or willing to stay up or tape games or whatever. Um, but yeah, I'm super nervous. So real, real quickly, when you say it's devastating, you're talking about one like interest among youths in terms of playing, but also what I'm really hearing you say is no. how interested are people in the, in watching on TV as a, as a television property, what's, what's happened. Is that what you're But well, it's terrible for Fox. They had already had a, a world cup without the U S which they weren't banking on. And now they've got, uh, you know, Qatar in, in November, December, in the middle of football season. And if it's without the United States, they're going to take a bath on that. And yes. They'll make a lot of it up the next time. And I don't think younger players, I don't think we'll suffer at the youth levels. Uh, because I think, you know, those of us who watch and, and, and know what's going on with American players going to Europe is I, I hear a new name every every month, every three weeks. I hear a new name of some kid who's, you know, headed up the, you know, headed up the process at Arsenal or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, about to be, you know, signed in Europe. Ricardo Pepe being like, 
you know, a, a perfect name, but uh, a, a recent name of, of, of among many. So, so Chris, why is it? Because you're talking about this team. You said that you don't think they have the medal of the team that went into Mexico and got a point. And I know there's some injuries floating around, but were you worried about the team even before these injuries? Or you're not that confident? Is it the coach? Is it the players? Especially if you've got players who were playing in Europe at a higher rate than we've ever seen before. Yeah, I, I think it's a mixture of two things. It's the injuries that you're hearing about. I mean, just like half an hour ago, Brendan Aronson was ruled out. And he's the uh, he's the uh, very, very uh, sensible replacement to Weston McKinney, who's out, who is probably our best player. Everybody talks about Christian Pulisic. And Christian Pulisic is great. But McKinney is really the engine in the middle for the United States. His replacement, who made a lot of sense, was just ruled out with an MCL problem. Uh, uh, Serginio Dest isn't playing. Matt Turner may or may not have gotten frostbite in Minnesota in, in our last game. Wow. Giorena is back, but, uh, you know, like, uh, what condition is he in? So injuries is a huge problem for us. And it plays into that second thing that we've alluded to in this conversation, and that is that how is Greg Burkhalter, the U.S. men's national team coach, managing these three games and the substitution pattern? So like Eric said, I think it was Eric, sorry. Uh, maybe we are just getting out of Mexico with no injuries and playing players that we don't think are going to play. And you save everything for Panama right. and Costa Rica. Whoa. But again, I don't think Weston McKinney, Pulisic and Serginio Dest, I trust in Costa Rica needing one point. Um, it's just, it's just, this is does really. Costa, does, yeah. does uh, Costa Rica play any, they're four points behind us. Do they play anybody where like they have no chance of winning two? Like, you know, even if they take, we're four points ahead of them with three to go. So even if they beat us, we're one point ahead of them with two to go. Maybe they play Mexico and Canada. Uh, We're five ahead of Costa Rica right now. From what I just saw, the U S has 21 Costa Rica has 16. So we would have to fall behind Costa Rica and Panama to completely fall out. Oh yeah. If you're in fourth, Uh, you play some sort of something, right? If you end yes. up fourth, you play a home and home. I'm, I'm 99% sure it's against New Zealand, uh, which I think is extremely winnable. But we didn't make that fourth place game the last time either. We fell into fifth place and we were out. Costa Rica is home against Canada, which is, an, which is you know, it's home. So it's winnable against uh, Canada. Uh, El Salvador on the road, which is winnable. And then us, the United States. So uh, from looking at that schedule, I think Costa Rica could get five points um, and put us, uh, you know, and, and and be level with us at 21. But um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just, I don't want to, I, I don't know that Greg Burhalter has figured out his substitution pattern. He seems to have 35 to 40 B minus players at his disposal and hasn't figured out the proper way to manage these three games in a row. That's just my you know, uh, opinion, which may or may not be worth, uh, anything. What you, you made the opposite comment about the Canadian coach. What is it you've seen from him that you said, you said he's done a good job managing these three game series, uh, team spirit. Um, everybody knows their role. Uh, they've rotated less players in, um, the, uh, injury to Davies has, um, uh, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't really didn't like, uh, lose a, a beat when they, they lost, you know, one of their two, you know, one of their one or two best players. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think he has, uh, he probably has, and, and again, I'm speculating here, but he probably has, he knows what his best 11 is at all times. 
Um, I don't think Greg Berhalter knows what his best 11 is at any time in this process. (laughs) And I don't think that's, I don't think that's, um, I I don't think that's incompetence. I just think that's, you know, our player pool, right? Yeah, right, right. I think it's our player pool. Let let me ask you a question. Um, Are you sure this isn't hindsight bias here? (laughs) Only in the sense that, I mean, the Americans haven't done well, and the Canadians have. And are you not just sort of backwards in your your view because they've won? I mean, I try to be more. I mean, I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm I'm a, a no soccer expert, um, but how well do you know the players? And I mean, how can you make that judgment? What's the What's the Is there a quantitative basis for this? Or just- no, no quantitative. I'm sorry. This is all gut feeling. <laughs> okay, this is all we. This is all I go off of is gut feeling. This is, isn't how we do this now, where we just go <laughs> off of gut feeling. I feel this way, so it must be fact. No, no. There's no quantitative analysis for right. this, which I realize is a complete no-no on this show. <laughs> and now, 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 uh, cue Cade uh, asking me about uh, expected goals. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. No, we're not doing that this time. We this is what we wanted. We wanted the background and the insight. But before we stop talking about it, give us something positive. If so, what? Where is your greatest hope on the American side? Where is your greatest hope for the next week? Like, what? What should we be, you know, lighting a candle for? <laughs> Chris, we really got you at a low moment here, man. I didn't Ooh, know it was cancellation. They're on top no. right now. No, I, I mean, look, we've got a real look. Uh, Matt Turner not playing in goal. We've got we've got good goalkeepers. So Horvath, uh, you know, we, we've got a strong goalkeeper uh, goalkeeping uh, crew. We've got Ethan Horvath, and or if, or if uh, Greg Berhalter wants to go with uh, Zach Steffen, I, I think that's fine as well. Walker Zimmerman is super underrated. Uh, you probably guys probably don't know him, but he's been extraordinary as our center back from what I've seen so far. Um, and you know, Polisic. We, we all love Polisic and he'll be there. He's, you know, he was unhappy about, uh, you know, one of the pictures that U.S. soccer took of him and posted, but, uh, oh you know, that fire will, will, I think that will fuel some fire here. I don't know. I, I, look, I'm still stung uh, by what happened the last time. And I'm still stung by, you know, um, I, I'm in a foul mood, Cade, because UConn just was disgustingly bad in two first round games and two tournaments in a row. So I'm probably at a low point. Yeah. We caught you right at the now. wrong. We caught you on the wrong weekend. This is true. Yeah. All right, no, let's, no, it was well, tough. The, way, the women are going tonight. We're going to be good. We'll be good. All right. Well, listen, we're going to have to let you go but before we go. Tell us what's next for you, because after a number of years at ESPN, you've walked away from that. And what, what, what are you walking towards? What's next? Or what are you thinking about? I'll be reappearing in the soccer space uh, really soon. Nothing that I'll announce it by Instagram with some beautiful photos at some point. But now I I, uh, I left ESPN after a glorious 26 year run uh, managing the 16th most important uh, sport at ESPN. And uh, I've I, uh, it that I'm, high. I thought it was a little lower. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> it depends on it depends on what we on what ESPN signs in the next. Uh, in the next three months uh oh, but uh no and, and i produced the olympics for nbc recently that was a lot of fun you mentioned x games that was awesome for me so i, I was happy with that now i'll be returning to the soccer space very soon in a coordinated producer slash producer position that's i great, will let huh? you know i will let you know that that's thing i can good, announce right now pretty good freelancing business when you when you walk away from espn in the fall and you walk into the olympics just go let's let me go produce some olympics Jeez, it was that's great. fantastic Bucket list. Um, any favorite moment from that experience? 
Any biathlon. I love biathlon. There's a guy named guy named Chad Salmala who is uh, an absolute delight. He's an announcer for uh, for, on biathlon, and I would check him out if you could follow him on Twitter if you can. Give give us his name again. Chad Salmala. S A L Salmala. M E L A. Yeah. Did you know you loved biathlon before you went out there? I didn't. No, I didn't. uh, Yeah. No. What do you what do you love Even about Even though it's the 12th most valuable property on ESPN. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, yeah, like, so right the professional biathlon league, then uh, soccer is will will sink to the depths even further at ESPN. Chris, give us a quick quick pitch on biathlon. What, I mean, you, you've seen a lot of stuff. You X Games, my God, these guys are like doing things in the air and you and you want to go watch a guy cross-country ski and shoot a gun? I, I think that's really interesting. It's quite the it's quite the dynamic. It's uh and this guy, Chad Salmala, really makes it exciting. I was all into the Norwegians. Um, I think it seems like a really difficult skill. Do you know that you're the, you want to keep your heart rate up? Uh, you want your heart beating heavy um, uh, when you cross-country ski, stop, and then, and then shoot the rifle? Did you know that? that Eric knew that. I knew well, I, that. I would, you, wait, you want to keep your heart rate up or down? I read that you're supposed to keep your heart rate up. And like your country. Country. Oh no, I would have guessed the opposite. Never mind. I didn't know anything. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't have any sorry, but I do not have any uh um uh analysis there. I do not have any statistics to back that up. I just going on feeling of what I think would be best in biathlon. <laughs> yeah, I think we're coming up with a new assignment for your freelance era. Maybe you do a little data camp. Maybe Eric, Eric and Audie could spend some time to tour to <laughs> tutoring you on some it was a really good question that flummoxed me because i i did not have analytic <laughs> data to back it up but i'm admitting that i had That's no right. analytic it data to bothered you a bit <laughs> no 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 no. i just i, I don't Chris, <laughs> i just we... wanted to transition to biathlon as fast as i could <laughs> the, the 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 orientation we prize above all else is knowing when you don't know which you have shown us in spades. And so you get passing marks from everybody. On. I, I'm not afraid. I, I will say when I'm just shooting from the hip, if I'm shooting mm-hmm. from the hip, mm-hmm. but back to biathlon. No, you don't know. Well, we, 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 we would, we will get, we'll get you another time on biathlon. Now that we know that that's one of your passions and now that you've given us someone to follow, we can do that. It's great to see you in, uh, on the zoom call here. I love it because I haven't seen you in forever and you're wearing your Texas hat even after mm-hmm. last night, which, yeah, uh, yeah. Even Which after last night, hey, they fought. They, that's like a very typical yeah, game good. this year. They that they team. I've never liked an average team more than this year's Texas basketball team. Those guys were so likable. Mm-hmm. It bode so well for the future of the program. What 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 um, Beard was able to get out of them, and Purdue had some guys. I mean, you, those. Oh. I mean, there's no shame in, in in they fought that and they lost at the end to some real players. Well, I saw them play Yale, and we knew that was a terrible matchup for Yale. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was, it was it was right now. It was it was like it was they were tied at like sixteen, and it was like nah, maybe no. And then the seven foot nine guy, right? Uh, yeah, you know, Edie is skilled at yeah, seven four. Yeah, he's, he's really he's really good, and Ivy is great. And yeah, we knew it wasn't going to go the right way for the Yaleys. Well, it's good fun. It's one of the best best events of the year. We're one. One weekend in, out of three. We've got two more to go. Um, we wish you the best, Chris, with this transition. We're looking forward to hearing the announcements. I'm sorry your Huskies are out of it, but I'm sure you'll find something else to pull for over the next couple of weeks. Nine points for the United States over the next week and a half. There you and, go. And, and we'll, 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 
We'll be in Qatar and we'll we'll actually probably do pretty well there. I, All right, I, you, gut you heard feeling it. though. No, you heard it here. Nothing, Chris, no facts to back it up. Just gut Chris feeling. Alexopoulos. Chris Alexopoulos. I just makes ran the call, a couple of coin flips, uh, a simulation, and that's what happens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for being with us, Chris. Always good to visit with you. That has been three quarters of Wharton Money, but we still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. It's Cade Massey with my collaborators and co-hosts, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. As you know, Q4 has become our interview segment in the time of COVID, and we are delighted to welcome to the show today for the first time, Mike Prada. Mike is a longtime writer and editor who's covered both the NBA and WNBA. You can follow him on Twitter. I think it's at Mike Prada NBA, if I remember correctly, and he's got a new book coming out. People are excited about this book. The title of it, Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew about basketball outstanding this is exactly what we need to know mike <laughs> welcome to the show glad to have you thanks for having me thanks for being patient as my uh technology didn't exactly Amen. work on me we've all gotten a whole lot more patient about technology over the last two years no worries no worries at all but do tell us where are you calling in from today where do you wh- what's home base for you home base is long island uh okay. i'm originally from dc which is why i'm a big wizards fan but moved up here uh maybe what year is it now? 2022. And it's hard to keep track of time sometimes. Mm-hmm, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Seven, eight years ago. Okay. Well, appreciate you making time for us. Tell us a little bit about how you got into basketball. What's your journey into this space? How have you learned enough to write the book that you've written? Well, I don't know if I know enough to write the book I've written, but some publishers thought I did. So I guess that's good enough for me. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I look, I'm, I'm a lifelong fan. I actually, you know, used to go to Bullets games back at Capitol Center when I was a kid with my dad. It was kind of our father son thing that we did. Got to get to know all those yeah, teams. Mike, give us, give us, give us the highlights of the Bullets back in the day. Like when you think about those teams, what are, what are the high points of those teams? There were high points. <laughs> That's kind of why I'm asking. <laughs> exactly. I, this is like during the beginning of the Chris Webber, Juwan Howard era. Okay. I was at okay. that game three when they played the Bulls. Okay. Uh, that was like probably the, the, I mean, they lost that game, but that series was probably the high point of that team. Tickets okay. were super cheap. It was a very old school atmosphere. We started going when they moved into Verizon Center. But by the time Jordan got to the team in like 2002, I sort of had – our tickets were kind of getting priced out a little bit. Okay. Um, so yeah, not too many high points. No, uh, <laughs> I went to the first Chris Webber, Juwan Howard game. I forget who they were playing it was back in 1995 or so. Mm-hmm. And I went to that Bulls playoff game and a number of games in between, but no, not too many high points. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you many. fell in love with the game nonetheless. I did. Yeah. I mean, this was at the time, I think when the NBA was very hot, uh, you know, Jordan era, Mm-hmm. I love those magic teams too. When I was a kid, those Penny Hardaway Shaq mm-hmm. teams and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually, you know, maybe this is part of what's motivating me to write the book. You know, I sort of in the early two thousands when I was in high school, I was probably more into 
the college game. I was a big Maryland fan. My, my mom's a professor at the law school there. That's when they mm-hmm. were really good. And then maybe by the end of that time, you know, really starting into when the handshake era kickstarts in 2004, 2005, that's when I really fell really hard back into the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that I didn't watch NBA games during the, the 2000s, but that was sort of, I didn't like that style of play as much. And, mm-hmm. you know, kind of got back into it really fell in love with those arenas teams that's how i started the wizards blog bolts forever when i was in college you know parlayed that into you know writing and editing the sb nation nba section for most of the 2010s we were very much i was very much on the ground floor with that kind of Mm -hmm. right place right time and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it was kind of a, again, right place, right time in a lot of ways, because the explosion of the basketball internet um, really took off when I was kind of in my college, kind of getting up Perfect. out of college, going into it. So, yeah, that's so, how I really got into it. Mike, you've been characterizing different eras in the NBA and different ty- types of play. How would you characterize the era that we're in now? I think the era that we're in now, and this is really the premise of the book, is that even really um, within the last five to eight to 10 years, is the game has fundamentally transformed in a way that it has not since maybe the shot clock in the 1950s. The reason that I'm writing this book is that I don't think that even as much as we've noted how three-pointers are going up, this isn't really a book about threes. You know, the threes are kind of the backdrop. This is a book about what it means that teams shoot all these threes and how that's changed every other part of the game. You know, strategies, tactics, where people stand, positions. What does a superstar do? What does it even mean to play, you know, good defense anymore? Uh, How do you shoot differently if you're supposed to shoot from 30 feet all the time instead of only shoot close shots? You know, stuff like going all the way down to that level. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that one of the reasons that the game is hard for some people to appreciate is that it's just different. It's a, you've taken the court and it's this wide for a while. And now you've added maybe 15 to 20 feet on both sides yeah. based on where people stand. You haven't added more players. So of course the game is very different. So mm-hmm. I think that's the motivation. I think what we're seeing now is so radically different than what we saw even 10 years ago that I think we're still wrapping our heads around what that means. So we'll get into some details and my colleague Eric is dying to jump in. I got to hold him off for one more second. Just real quick. Let me jump to your bottom line from as a consumer of the NBA as a longtime devotee. Are you mm-hmm. happy about it? Or is this a better product or worse? Like net, net, we'll, we'll talk about the whys, but just jump into the bottom line, net, net. How do you feel about that? I like this better personally. Okay. Okay, so- um, I think there's more complexity to the game. Mm-hmm. I think it's more interesting to analyze. I think there's more layers to it. At the same time, I also can understand how someone can look at what's happening now and there's so much happening and prefer kind of the simpler style the more condensed style of the past uh it's interesting i don't know eric jump in you got a question yeah i was just gonna ask i i I was just looking this up so the nba three-point shooting percentage right now is 34.2 percent somewhere around there 34 35 percent and so you know since that's worth three we multiply that out we get an expected point of a little over one um Mm -hmm. you know they talk about this all love your perspective on it you know, if you're a big man in today's game, if you don't shoot above 50% from the field, then shooting all twos is not worth very much. So how do you perceive the role of the big man in today's game? And let me just preface that, Mike, with I grew up in the Patrick Ewing era in New York City. <laughs> and so Patrick Ewing and shooting 18 to 20 foot jumpers, there's no role for that in the NBA anymore. Patrick Ewing was a great center and a great scorer, but 
you know, he can't consistently shoot well enough. I'd rather have a guy shooting 37% from three. Well, my question to you would be, why couldn't Patrick Ewing shoot 37% from three? He was had great touch out to 18 feet. He could pretty very, I'm pretty sure he could have learned to shoot that shot. You know, I think absolutely. I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, look at what Brooke Lopez has done in this career. Like you're telling me Patrick Ewing couldn't do that. Uh, You know, and, and you still, I think one of the things that's interesting that's happening now is we've kind of now gotten a sense of this is what the landscape is, is that, I mean, certainly the top two MVP candidates are centers, or at least what we traditionally consider as centers. You're seeing kind of now with everybody playing so spread out, there's room for some of the more quicker post-up duckins that, whereas, you know, Patrick is just sort of setting up shop on the left block or the right block, or was he a left blocker or a right blocker? I'm trying to remember. Uh, left blocker, I believe. Um, and you just wait there and you just sort of have this guy holding the ball over his hands and throwing it into him. <laughs> right. Now you have now you have it so that because of the way the game is spread, there's room for that sort of quick duck in uh, into the low post and that quick pass, and you're getting a lot of that stuff. I think Phoenix is really good at that with DeAndre Ayton. You know, it's how he gets so many of his points. So you combine that with, you know, what is really materially the difference between shooting 20 foot spot up shots versus shooting 25 foot spot up shots. You know, mm-hmm. there's no reason that I think that there's this, I think myth that these big guys necessarily couldn't necessarily function, but I think a lot of them had range. They just were never encouraged to extend it out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Patrick actually, I think would be a pretty decent fit in this era if he could slim down a little bit to be able to, cover all out on defense and i think he would we would certainly it would be fascinating to talk to a biomechanics person because i've never by the way your your suggestion is great mike of all our years doing wharton moneyball i've never heard someone just come with a perspective of well the big men can just learn to shoot the three and it'll be very doing (laughs) i know but the classic example is is that big men can't shoot as well because of you know in some sense the physics of it there there's too many moving parts the levers longer they can't be as consistent in shooting it but i it would you know i I love that perspective. You know, it's interesting you talk about that. I don't know if I'm on a, I'm cutting something off, but this is actually a really big component of the book, really the second half, which is how do you change your body so that you can shoot the ball from 25 feet away? Not just capability, but can like a lot, you know? And one of the things that's really happened is collectively, whether you're big or small, whether you're wide or skinny, the the league as a whole is leaner now. There is not as much top heavy players. Like Patrick had these like huge this huge chest. What more of that strength now is being redirected, and this is kind of something that's happened in the fitness community in general. It's re- being redirected into your core muscles, um, and that has had an effect on three point shooting because it smoothed up a lot of those sort of things that you're talking about, where there's so much muscle to go up and down. Because mm-hmm. the core muscles are the strongest muscles for whether you're big or small. I mean, you look at Nikola Jokic, for example, his core muscles are incredible. He looks like he's kind of big and doughy, but he is able to move because of his, his waist and whatever. And that means that his shots are smoother. And so, yeah, I think that is mm-hmm. what happened. Big right. men have l- had to mm-hmm. learn to play, to act with that body type. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. There's it, we're we're hearing that biomechanics are playing a bigger role in analytics in basketball. Increasingly, teams are looking at this very closely in in somewhat analogous way to the way baseball has done with pitchers and batters. That that's coming in. 
which will be fun to watch over the next few years. And one general question, Shane's trying to jump in, but real quickly, one general question, how much do we, how, how could we evaluate whether just the league as a whole shoots better? I mean, it's really hard to hold everything constant, but is it the sense that the world just shoots better? I mean, Steph Curry goes out and shows everybody, look, you don't have to, you know, get as close to the line as you can before shooting, just start jacking it up from five feet behind. And now these high school kids are doing it. And I mean, it, there is a sense it's a little bit like NFL passing is just better than it was 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Joe Namath, whatever. I mean, you see what guys do now. They're like, they just throw the ball better. It has to be the case that it doesn't have to be. I'm presuming it's the case that guys shoot better as well. Is this true? And if so, how would we even know it? Well, it's interesting to Eric's point earlier, if you look at actual three point percentage, uh, last year being an exception, last year was an exceptionally good three point percentage year. That has stayed relatively constant. What has changed is just that the volume of three point shooting and the speed at which you can get the shots off, mm-hmm. you know, that's really changed and, and kind of where you're getting your threes from the well, step backs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Mike, isn't it, isn't it possible that they're, being taken from eight to 10 inches deeper on average. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, so they're, they're keeping the the shooting percentage constant from a more difficult spot for a more difficult range. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was getting to is that just because the percentage is that, but I think it's interesting that the need to shoot the ball from deep has caused that where such there's such a premium getting shots up. One Mm -hmm. of my theories for this and one of the, the kind of key chapters in the book is that, when you think about the elixir of confidence and everybody says you need to be confident in order to shoot, you can't be afraid of missing. One of the things that I think is aided by it with the way the game is played is that you're being asked to play in so much more flow, make so much, so many quicker shoot past whatever decisions that you just have to develop an ability to let it fly freely. (laughs) And that I think is making everyone a better shooter, both mentally and biomechanically because Uh all of their sort of body, they're fine tuning emotion They're you know, their, their body is free flowing. There's not much friction in their motion where you look at some of the motions of these past players. And it's like, step, step arms all over the place. Like (laughs) Patrick Ewing is a great example. I mean, like, Think about how many different, like, it almost feels like you're running through a checklist. It's like, okay, got this yeah, part. Now right. I can open. When you shoot, we have to shoot a lot. I think it, it removes a lot of that, and that makes you a better shooter. It makes you yeah. more confident. More, you think less. You let well, it fly more. And I think there's a huge element of that happening. You're reminding me of playing, like, like playing third base in baseball, and you're, and you're on the grass, and you just have no time to think before the ball gets to you. And it's in some ways, mm-hmm. it's harder because you have less time. But in some ways, it's easier because it's all instinct. And if you're if you've done it enough, then it's actually taking taking the thinking out of it is a good thing. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like trusting and you like basically just kind of trying to acquiesce to the muscle memory or something like that as much as possible. Um, the question I kind of had is sort of like you know, obviously you're describing a pretty pronounced kind of ongoing evolution or change in the sport. I kind of. I'm interested in kind of what the long-term equilibrium is. I mean, you know, I, you know, I can imagine that as, you know, all these young developing players are looking at the current state and being like, I got to get even better at three-point shooting. And that's going to just lead to even better three-point shooting. Is there going to have to be some kind of defensive or schematic innovation that kind of like, you know, at some point it's got to asymptote or, or, or like somehow like mm-hmm. be brought back yeah. into an equilibrium. Where do you kind of see that? How do you see that happening? 
Well, I think it actually happened a little bit to start this year. Um, and one of the subjects of the last chapter is how what these changes that have done is they brought on a long overdue rethink of how we slot like defensive technique, not just strategy from like a schematic perspective, but also to your point, like, is it really right to be sliding your feet without crossing them? Or, you know, do we need to think more like defensive backs? And I think that's dramatically changed at the same time. I'm going to answer your question with another question, which I'm sure you're going to hate, but who is to say that this is not the equilibrium and what we had in the past with this game that was perhaps too condensed was the unbalance mm-hmm. i'm gonna pose i mean basketball if you think about going back all the way to james naismith they had wanted to have a game that was free-flowing where size was not as significant a factor it was not football so i guess the question is you know are we fun? I don't know the answer to this, but I think it's interesting to sort of think of it this way. Is this the equilibrium? And actually what we had in the nineties all this time, particularly in the nineties, just because it was so slow down and so condensed was the unequilibrium and that it was too far favoring defenses and offenses have now created an equilibrium. It's an interesting question. I don't know the answer, but I think it's, it's something worth considering. You know, there's always this assumption that this is the era where it's out of whack Maybe it was always out of whack, and now it's back where it should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking to Mike Prada. Mike is a longtime basketball writer and follower. He's got a new book coming out this fall. It's called Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew About Basketball. Mike, tell us more ways in which this has changed how we're thinking about basketball. But tell us more ways in which we need to shift our understanding if we've been watching it for 50 the, one of the chapters that I'm really excited for people to read is this concept of dribbling and the Euro step and the gather step. And I know, I know Eric was eager to kind of fire some shots at James Harden, Always, uh, <laughs> you know, but you can't deny that his impact on just how players step with the ball has been pretty significant. And he's not the only one. He's part of a long movement, but when you think about dribbling and just moving, I mean, how many times have you watched sort of some of these guys moving? It's like, how are they not traveling? Right. I'm sure you've had that thought all the time. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. It as a naive observer, I just assumed they didn't call traveling very often. <laughs> no. Right. Well, I think this chapter is for you because what's been really, it's actually been a, a really interesting evolution in the rule itself. You know, if you think about when you go to shoot a layup, like on, I don't know. I'm looking at a court at a hoop outside my house right now. I'm sure you guys have them. Think about when you're in a layup line and you pick up the ball and you do that little like two steps for a layup thing. If you actually slow down and really think about what you're doing, you're gathering the ball. That's one step. And then you're taking two more steps and you're finishing. Now imagine if you could take that same concept, gather it plus two steps, but instead of doing it unthinkingly or just kind of always move forward or always like kind of in the momentum you're going, you could do those steps at any point, anywhere, anytime. You could customize each one of them, right? So you could extend your gather. You could step really far one way and step really far another way. That's what NBA players do now. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that, that is it. And so because they've taken this sort of stage that players for years and years and years took for granted and are now thinking about how to customize that to their benefit, to take 
to travel further with fewer steps. And the Euro step is one element of it, but it's not the only one. I'd say it starts a little bit with Allen Iverson and his kind of hang crossover dribble. Um, you think about that. Well, now you have to think about what, what do you, how do you define that in the rule book? You know, for the longest time, the traveling rule hadn't did not mention steps. Now it's like, well, I guess we just got to allow two steps after you gather. But then what if you can customize your gather so that you're picking the ball up at a certain point and that's your gather. You put your foot down, gather two long steps. It's legal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. really, it's not two long steps. It's two point nine, 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 nine steps. <laughs> as long as you don't because take the third. Right. As long as you don't take the third. So when you consider that, now we need to think of movement with the ball as something beyond just dribbling. Like how well are you moving after you pick up your dribble? So mm-hmm. you've almost we're almost in like a post dribble world, and I can understand why that is really fucking strange for people <laughs> who have watched basketball. But I think that's kind of where we're at, and so we need to think a little bit about like kind of because now the move also happens in those like the dribbling, the actual dribble is only one part of a three part process when you have the ball, and that I can imagine is just like whoa like how do i make sense of that (laughs) you know but that's kind of what's happening now and i think it's it's one of those things that i think is hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around Mm -hmm. mike you started that segment talking about james harden and uh you said that you were watching the phillies game from last night eric Mm -hmm. uh, was has been really worked up about harden over the last week it seems like things have gone um, not as well as hoped and increasingly so so uh what is actually Maybe we should give Eric a moment to vent, and you can tee Mike up for some question you have about Harden. Well, Mike, during just before the show started, said he was going to watch the. He's been watching the Sixer game from last night. So, in the last two minutes of the Sixer game last night, James Harden. Which I haven't gotten to, by the way. Okay. All right. right. I'll give you the recap. Um, (laughs) I mean, I know what happened, but I haven't seen it. (laughs) No, but he threw the ball away, missed two free throws, had a wide open layup that he missed and then had a charging call against him all in the last two minutes of the game. And so, um, and there were two times where I'm, Mike, you can correct me when you see it. You can tweet to at W Moneyball if you disagree with me. He (laughs) doesn't want the ball at the end of the game. I'm now convinced of that. He does not want to shoot the ball. He passed the ball wide open to Thibel. He wasn't, he was wide open. Thibel was not. He tried to get rid of the ball to Maxi. Gotten, Isn't this ironic after what happened with Ben Simmons last I, year? I'm, I'm with you. I'm telling you, you're going to watch the last two minutes of that game and you're going to tweet at W Moneyball. And of course, people should follow Mike Prada at Mike Prada NBA. You can do both of those tweets at the same time. You tell me whether you think he doesn't want to shoot the ball at the end because he didn't want it. Okay, I'll check it out. Um, what's the question? Uh, what do you think about Harden? <laughs> I'm not a fan of his. I'm not, I'm not a fan of his. He actually, and by the way, we talked about this last week. He's not in the top 50 clutch players of all time. As, as you know, there's a stat called clutch. He's not yeah. one of them. He's not well, his, one of them. Yeah. I mean, this has been a problem throughout his career. You know, going back to his best days, you know, certainly in the playoffs, his numbers go down. You know, the, the popular reason is because he relies so much on sort of little tricks to draw fouls. Uh, you know, I think there's something to that. For a while, some of it was just because he's trying to get to certain places, so he's a little more predictable at the end of games. I think there's something to that. I think some of it is also 
you know, he hasn't really learned because he's so good as an on-ball player. He hasn't really learned how to play off the ball super well. Um, this year, though, I think has been an interesting year for him because I think in addition to all that, plus I think he has never re- – he did not recover from his hamstring injury last year, seemed to be out of shape. This was true with the Nets. I think that this year the league is up on him a little bit more in terms of kind of what we were talking about last time, just before, where – your move is not done when you pick up your dribble. And he was a master at, okay, I'm going to gather here. And I'm going to gather through you and I'm going to use my core strength and like tr- trunk strength to step through you. And then the way I describe it in the book is that he creates legal contact so that you foul him. Yep. Right. So he, he's, he like kind of, it's not a foul when he does it because it's legal, but then because he, he's, taking the wind out of you essentially you hack and slap down on him mm-hmm. the league is up on that stuff this year i think one of the things that's happened over the last three or four years is that as the league has learned how to defend in this new era they have become better at um keeping their arms up when they're moving in space you know for a while it, they just literally couldn't do it like they didn't have the, the right core strength or training he's almost been so good at that skill that they've had to learn how to keep their arms up, uh, keep their, hold their hands back, you know, not be dislodged on when he like drives into them. And I think what's happened this year in a lot of cases is that is the effect of that. He's trying a lot of the same old moves that he worked, but guys from on all and every size, not just guys, his size, but also big and small guys are better at anticipating and reacting to them. Their bodies are built better for it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's a, a bit of factor in why, certainly a slow start to the year and what happened was happened to him recently in Philly. It's so interesting. There's a theme across sports and in, in that teams adapt. And then does the player or does the coach have a second move a response? And so mm-hmm. often we see these guys come out, they can do one thing or they can do two things. And then over time they get taken away from them. The greats can still have a second, a third or fourth thing. And a lot of folks don't have that, but this, this, this idea of adapting to change, is is really what's driving your book. It's like, okay, three-point revolutionizes the game, and then everything changes downstream. Here in the last couple of minutes, can you give us an example or two of some teams that you think have been especially good with that adaptation? Who is it that's kind of taking us into this new frontier and showing the way of how this should best be played mm-hmm. now that we've got this spread out three-point oriented game? Yeah, I think uh, certainly over the last four, five or six years, the rivalry that kind of pushed the game forward was Golden State versus Houston. I think it was very art versus science there. Uh, and now as we kind of go forward, you know, it's there are a lot of really interesting teams out there, but I'm particularly watching Miami is a really interesting one. I think the big revolution that's starting to metastasize is this idea of defense. You know, now that we have to cover all this space, how do we structure our defense so that, you know, we are able to stop people from getting to the basket, but also cover the three point line. Mm -hmm. Miami's doing a little bit of this. I think Toronto is a really fascinating, the team that Philly plays is a fascinating, like kind of mad science experiment, Mm -hmm. you know, in this regard where you're prioritizing length and kind of a lot of like in and out and in and out movements so that, you stop people from getting to kind of pass the free throw line extended collectively. You might give up a lot of threes, but 
you're kind of constantly shifting back and forth and back and forth. Hmm. So they can't, they get threes off, but it's not the drive and kick variety. Uh, and mm-hmm. Toronto is kind of takes that to another insane level with the length they have. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, those aren't necessarily the best teams right now, but I think those are two teams that stylistically maybe a couple years ago, were really starting to do, I think some interesting things in the defensive space that more teams are now adopting, you know, it's not even switching necessarily, which is kind of the end vote thing. It's sort of mm-hmm. just like it, it they both play zone, but their man schemes are basically kind of zones too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting to watch them, who they prioritize, who they pick. Uh, and then the other thing that I think is interesting to watch that I'm looking at Memphis in particular is what if there is no half court or transition? What if it's all full court game? What if you create these turnovers and you push the ball off mix and you're just constantly flying up and down the court and you're blurring the line between what those two things are. I think that's already <laughs> happened, but, but Memphis is a really interesting example because Memphis is a only a shaky half court offense. If you look mm-hmm. at just their half court sets, but they get so many points off running and transition and, mm-hmm. you know, almost basically turning the whole 94 feet into a half court possession. Mm-hmm. Is that something that can you now have like kind of, I don't know if you guys are soccer fans, but it's like a total football s basketball style right. of <laughs> play like those Dutch teams used to do. I mean, is there right. something going on there? Uh, so those are some teams I'm keeping an eye on for sure. Fascinating. Super, super interesting. And it's always good to point the watchers to paying attention to defense, pay more attention to defense, like mm-hmm. tear your eyes away from the ball and see what the other side is doing to offset this. Yeah. Thing. Ball, watch balls, watch feet. That's mm-hmm. what, that's my best advice for watching game. Or no, sorry. Wait, I screwed that up. Watch away from the ball. <laughs> away from the ball. <laughs> watch space and watch feet. Don't watch the ball. And yeah, you'll that's... see there's a lot going on, I think. Right. Listen, Mike, appreciate you taking time to be with us. Super enjoyable. We wish you the best with your work. We wish you the best with the book that's coming out. Again, folks, it's Spaced Out, called Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew About Basketball Do Out This Fall. You can follow Mike on Twitter. He is at Mike Prada NBA, at Mike Prada NBA. Mike, thank you for the time. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm now going to go watch James Harden fork up the game so <laughs> and then you're going to tweet, tweet about it at w moneyball okay right, well guys. thank you guys for having me i really appreciate all the pub uh, i look forward to coming back some other time hope so hope so thank you and that has been two hours of sports analytics another two hours here on sirius six and we do it every week for the whole crew this is Cade massey for eric bradlow who's been here the whole time shane jensen the whole time for adi weiner and absentia here in the last quarter but for most of the show for the boss man, Matty Bats, and the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.